Welcome to the Pilot Boys Podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. And here are your hosts, Vishwant and Partha. Welcome to the Pilot Boys Podcast. Today we have a really special interview with uh, the one and only Phil Helmuth. Phil is a Lasso investor, a uh, longtime mentor of mine, mentor and advisor, and uh, the Poker Goat, uh, one of the uh, very, very rare talents to walk this earth to uh, be able to establish a career as uh, the single greatest person to do something. Um, so, you know, without further ado, Phil, we're, we're so grateful you're on. Yeah, thanks, Partha. It's been a fun journey. You know, I mean, from the first time you and I talked regarding Lasso, I mean, I was like, man, this is a good fit for me. And then you came back to me and you're like, hey, are you interested in being an advisor? <laughs> which, which, you know, and then I'm like, hey, give it a week, you know, and I advise now between 11 and 15 different companies. And it's a very, uh, a lot of them early stage, not all early stage. And uh, for me, it's been a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, there's a formula there for me, which is kind of easier to follow. But uh, it, it's been fun for me to it's been fun for me to watch you, Partha, uh, you know, spread your wings and start at such a young age doing this. And and I, I've, I've always liked the way you're thinking about this, even now challenging yourself to is this the right role for me? Is that the right role for me? How can I help the company move forward? I, I like that. I appreciate that, man. And I think one of the things that, you know, that drew me to you early is just you've you've had this um, strong awareness of who you are that I think resonates through your whole career. Um, I remember after we met, I went and read um, Positivity. Uh, is it Hashtag Positivity? The, yeah. uh, the book just kind of on your on your life philosophies. And I took a bunch of your practices. I took the, the note that you put on the bathroom mirror. Um, a list of your goals for the year, a list of the things you're grateful for. I built those practices into my life. And, you know, I think uh, probably the first question and, and where I want to start is that you're unique in, in that you had this idea at a very, very early age. There it is. Um, at a very early age, I believe it was uh, around 19 or, or 20, right, when you decided um, to lean into poker can you talk a little bit about your experience in understanding yourself? And I know the journey has had different elements, different chapters to it. Yeah. How did you find yourself through the game and how did you have that tremendous clarity about who you were at such a young age? Yeah. I mean, I, I was, uh, you know, from the time, from the time I was young dealing with, you know, dealing with uh, low self-esteem. Um, I, and then, you know, was, was too self-centered in the sense that, if you want to be great at poker, you have to get rid of all those weaknesses. And so you're always staring at yourself, staring at yourself, staring at yourself. Uh, you know, and when you start in poker, it's not an easy road. You know, I mean, you have to start with basically no money. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, too many people have a thousand dollars to their name and blow it all in one night or two thousand to the name or ten thousand. And so you have to understand that there's discipline within money management. You have to understand your own weaknesses when I come to the table hungry, I don't play my best. When I come to the table tired, I don't play my best. Um, I probably should avoid those 36 hour sessions that every young poker player puts in, you know, and, you know, and then learning to, you know, when to, when to quit, but it's, a, it's a constant, you're constantly looking inside yourself. Why did I do this? 
why did I do that? How can I become better at this or that? And so then I kind of tried to distill my philosophy. And, and so early I came up with, you know, most of the stuff in this book, Positivity. And you see that, you know, Tony Robbins tells people to buy my book. It's incredible. When I found that out, not by him, when I found out that, you know, someone's like, oh, my God, Tony Robbins told me to buy your book, Phil. I was like, holy shit. You know, <clears throat> a poker player, yes. And I told my wife I'm going to become like a guru and start a, a kind of a movement. It's not really like that, though, right? You just It's just eight life tips, right? And, yeah. uh, and I'm so happy they've helped you, Partha. And they've helped so many people. And you've got Sheryl Sandberg on here, and I put Draymond Green on here, too. That and, uh, and, you know, it's amazing. Cheryl read the book, took her 70 minutes. She's like, this blew me away. So it's really eight simple life tips. And, uh, you know, the one, the one that I like to tell that I'll just lead off with and then I'll come back to you for a question is, you know, is this concept that I came up with where it's the subtitle of this book. You know, you're always in the right place at the right time. And people are like, what do you mean? I'm not in the right place at the right time. Well, I think of it like this, and, and you've read this already. So I think of it as someone, you know, living in a house, and they have, I don't know, three kids. And then there's a guy next door living in a house and he has three kids. And, you know, at dinner, the one guy says, hey, uh, I have this amazing idea for starting a sports bar. These are the eight reasons that I can pursue my dream and move forward. And at the end of that conversation, you know, his kids are probably bored, but his wife's like, that's cool. That's cool. That's cool. He says to his wife, Martha, please pass the peace, which means, <laughs> hey, I'm done, done with the idea. Martha, please pass the peas came from Carl Westcott, who I've, you know, who's helped me the way I think about business a lot. And, uh, and he came up with this concept of someone comes with a great idea and they say, Martha, please pass the peas. That's his, but it'll, it fits nicely into my story. Now the house next door, the same, there's this, this father says, Hey, I have these eight ideas of how I'm going to start a sports bar. Um, they're both in the same place. They both work in similar places. They both, everything's kind of aligned in their lives, except this guy does one thing differently. He says, tomorrow on my way home from work, I'm going to stop by my favorite sports bar and talk to the owner. And as he walks into that door, as he pulls that door open, you can see that he's walking through a physical door, but also what exists behind that door, you know, um, you know, if you think of it more metaphorically, is like six other doors, but he's walked through that door. Now, you know, as a businessman, Partha, that, you know, and, and a lot of people watching this, that, you know, the door behind that door could be, hey, uh, why don't you buy my sports bar? Or here's the great ideas that I did, or I can line you up with someone to help you finance it. So just by, just by taking that first step. And so that's one of the life tips, you know, that, that I, that I'm, I'm just teaching people is, you're always in the right place at the right time. I caught something in, in, in your statement that it only took her about 70 minutes to read. And I think that's something that a lot of people mistake in life. Some of the greatest books, my favorite book is The Alchemist, Four Agreements, Seven Spiritual Laws, Think and Grow Rich. These books take complicated thoughts and simplify them. And I think that's really the trick to poker. It's a very complicated sport, but you've probably figured out through practice and through learning and playing, it's probably fairly simple to you now to play the game. It's still challenging when you play other great players, but take us through that process for you in, in terms of when you knew, 
hey, I have something here that literally almost nobody else has within this specific game of poker. I think when I was 23 is when is when I had a breakthrough um, and said, hey, listen, you know, hey, if you're going to be a professional poker player, then you're going to be the best player in the world. You're going to do that by winning a bunch of World Series of poker tournaments because that's the only way we could measure it back then. And and uh, if you're going to do this for a living, then become great, or in my case, become the greatest. And so that was kind of a written goal from the time I was 23 years old. And then when I was 24, I started winning some of the biggest tournaments. I won the biggest tournament, the World Series of Poker main event. What's behind all of that, though, you know, to come back to my book, Positivity, you know, I wrote, you know, there's a life tip in here where I talk about one of the eight life tips. So one is you're always in the right place at the right time. Another one is, you know, how do I get from here to there? And so I, I have people, you know, kind of write down, I call it a pyramid of success. Yeah, the pyramid concept also works. Uh, you know, if you think about poker, all the money flows to the top. Easy concept to see for people at home. All these small stakes games where the winners go to the next level. They bring the money to the next level and the winners in that bring the money to the next level and so on. So when you get to the very top of poker, you have a bunch of super successful businessmen that love the game that are tough and, um, and the, the best poker players in the world. But to cut back to the pyramid, you know, so I put down, you know, a list of my strengths and my weaknesses and things that I had to do kind of in that pyramid, you know. One of those concepts was, you know, I know that exercise helps me sleep better. I know that exercise helps me think better. And so, you know, another concept is, hey, let's not become addicted to those casino games, craps, blackjack, baccarat, slots, that kind of stuff. And so I kind of was able to shed those games by the time I was 24. Now, I've, now that I'm 57, I come back and I and I'll fire at those games, but it's the money's irrelevant, you know, yeah. compared to my net worth, you know. And so maybe I'll risk 10,000 10, in one day at those games, but I kind of keep track of that. And, uh, you know, maybe lifetime, I'm close to even in those games in the last 10 years. Maybe I'm down 20,000, but it's an irrelevant amount compared to my net worth. Um, so, yeah, I mean, starting when you're trying to master a game, and back then, the only game really was No Limit Hold'em, mm -hmm. then you spend an incredible amount of time talking with your friends, thinking about concepts, understanding, breaking down how your last session went. Which hands could I play better? Can you glean new insights into exactly? And so I spent an incredible amount of time searching, looking inwardly, because at the end of the day, you can come up with all the best concepts in the world. You still have to be able to apply them. You, and I was given some gifts and some weaknesses. And, uh, you know, and, and my gift is that I seem to be able to look at people and understand whether they're weak or strong. I have great reading abilities. And another uh, big strength of mine is I'm able to decode games, hmm. all games. And that includes business. And so I think that's why I'm on 11 to 15 advisory boards, primarily with a lot of younger founders. And I think Partha would tell you that, that I helped them a lot. I had to help them 2%. Um, I brought some athletes into the into the thing. And, and, and I'm going to be even more helpful for Lasso Gear when it's time to raise some VC money when it's time to go out and get the big checks and I can make some phone calls. So, uh, Phil, you, you're alluding to kind of exactly where I want to go with the next question. 
with your poker career and the success you found at a young age, it also brings a whole lot of exposure to the business community, to a lot of people. Two sides of it. One, you immediately found access to a very different caliber of business person than you had access to prior. But you were also being chased by a totally different type of business person that wanted to take from you rather than to give. Um, how were you able to learn and differentiate the good versus bad? Uh, your book, even even that subheading that we read, you're always in the right place at the right time, alludes to a really deep sense of spirituality and presence that you carry with you. And we've talked in the past um, individually about you've had some amazing experiences, whether it's been personal development, learning meditation, learning all these different elements that help you to stay well-rounded, well-balanced. Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of the personal development practices as you are getting exposed in real time to a lot of the great, but also a lot of the ills of the world? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, uh, when you start more at a, at a self-centered place, uh, you know, it's funny, uh, you know, one of my friends is like, hey, Phil, you're a narcissist. And I'm like, like 10 years ago. And I'm like, dude, look up the definition of narcissist. He's like, okay, you're not a narcissist. <laughs> uh, but self-centered, definitely. And, uh, and so you, you kind of learn, you know, I've been, I'm married to, you know, a world-class psychiatrist and uh, we've been married now 32 years, man. Psychoanalysis is pretty deep then over there. <laughs> and, you know, I remember my wife coming to me in like 2000, 2001 and saying, Hey, you know, um, I'm not sure I want to be with you anymore and how devastating that was for me. And, uh, you know, you talk about personal growth. She and I had been down to, you know, to study Buddhism, which we found to be a very cool religion. Um, and a lot of the concepts that we discovered in there, we really liked about, you know, being a good person and being positive, a positive force. And then she and I put a lot of time uh, into our relationship because when you're threatened with losing someone, you know, I mean, to me, my wife, you know, a, an MD at a huge university here. We won't say the name of it. We won't even mention her name. She hates that. Also a black belt in karate. And to me, the most beautiful woman in the world. And she's ready to say, Hey, I'm ready to leave you. I'm like, Oh my God. And you know, of course, of course I was crying a lot at that point. And, um, but it spurred a lot of growth. And so we started going into couples therapy. I think of the primary relationship as being like a fist right here. And then you have all these other secondary and third area relationships. And as the primary relationship changed, as I was able to listen to her better, as I was able to, you know, um, I was able to correct a lot of the things. It also changed all my other relationships. All my other friendships became tighter and tighter and closer and closer. And, you know, to the point where one of my best friends was crying. He's like, oh, my God, you've changed so much. You're actually listening to me. And, uh, you know, it's so it, it and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm on the right path here. And but that also translates to poker, because the better you understand yourself and your relationship, uh, your primary relationship, the better you're going to understand all the secondary relationships. And so for a year and a half, I had some major growth. We're talking about growing into stuff, you know, Partha. And uh, and, and I remember after a year and a half, she's like, OK, we're going to make it. You know, I mean, she probably knew after months. Um, but, and then we stopped going, I really missed it because I was kind of addicted to becoming better and better and better and better. And I liked that. And, you know, therapy is the one place where you can go in and you can say, hey, you do this bad. You do that in normal life and your partner says, fuck you, you're worse at that than me. 
That's yeah. always the response, right? You guys are laughing, the audience, because that's true. You go into therapy and, uh, and your partner says, oh, you're really bad at this. Well, you pause and you consider and you say, yeah, yeah, that's true. Why am I bad at this? Mm. And then, you know, and you find a lot of times, uh, you know, that you, know, you come from different backgrounds and, you know, and, and, and you find that the, the thing you were trying to do for your partner to make them feel good and help them was the thing that the exact opposite of what they wanted. And you're like, yeah, oh my God. Yeah, you bring, you bring up a very interesting thought, um, specifically looking at what poker is and what you do for a living. It is hyper competitive. It's you versus everybody else. And you find this across sports, across kind of these kind of areas where in your career, you're forced to be this person, right? And you kind of, people know that about you off the, away from the poker table, Phil, versus at the poker table, Phil, are two different people. And it seems like part of that balance that you said you found when your wife was like, okay, I need to know how to turn that person off at will and then also be that person at will. How challenging is that to essentially have to be two different types of people Super challenging. to be successful there were changes. versus being a, a successful poker player? Yeah, no, I mean, actually, no one's asked me that. That's actually a really good question. It's super challenging because there's times where I'm like, honey, I can't work on this. I'm winning everything in sight and I don't want to think about this. I want to just continue to move forward. And then, you know, as time has passed, you're not always crushing it. And, you know, um, and so then you're ready to make all the changes and you realize everything you can change is for basically for the better. And so I do, I don't read a lot of books on how to, I don't basically read any books on how to become better because I'm a little bit afraid that, you know, things are so amazing for me. You know, um, I don't know. I said it the other day and this is something you have to be real careful about. I said to my friend, I said, poker is easy. And I said, Oh shit. I said that out loud. Now I'm screwed. And Mike, <laughs> the mouth Madison, I will tell you, whenever we say that we start losing. Yeah. Because poker's not actually easy, but what I mean it to convey, and I had to dig into this deeper. And of course I did get 50,000 losers the night I said it. Luckily, we played till 2.40 in the morning instead of 2.30 and ended up winning 25000 <laughs> That was just lucky. But it's not easy. What I mean to say is at age 57, after 37 years of accumulating knowledge, working on my discipline and, uh, you know, and being used to being in the right place at the right time, it's e a lot easier to then make money. So you don't want to say poker is easy, but, you know, it does seem like winning. I've been doing a lot of winning for a long time. And, you know, um, I've had critics, V, uh, critics. And I mean, I've, I, I think that 99% of the poker world of the world consider me the greatest of all time, the GOAT, as Partha introduced me. And uh, that's nice. But, but, you know, you've got some, one big name who says I... I'm not great at poker. And then we played three heads up matches and I beat him for 50,000, a hundred thousand, 200,000. And then he had to kind of shut up for a little while, but now he's back on the attack. And then they said, they said, Phil can't do this in cash games. Well, then I won 24 out of 25 televised cash games. I won 30 times in a row playing high stakes cash games, mixed games in Vegas. They know this. I've talked about this. And it said, so then it comes across as me just bragging. And then finally they said, oh, Phil can't compete in the high rollers. 
So I hadn't played many high roller tournaments, but I'm like, wait a minute, I'm up 1.75 million in high rollers. What are you talking about? <laughs> but you know, he forgot that, my critic. And so I finally, after three years, I went and played in some high rollers and I made three final tables in four days. And so I kind of crushed the high rollers as well. So I've been crushing, you know, kind of, so their last criticism is Phil's not good in high rollers. So back in the day, it was Phil's the best Hold'em player in the world by far, but not good at the mixed games. And then, and then the last 10 years, I've won more bracelets in mixed games and more, had more final tables than almost anybody else, including seven final tables in mixed games, the most recent series. No one's ever had seven before. And I did it all in mixed games. So now, oh, Phil's a great mixed game player, but oh, now he's not a great Hold'em player. And so you find the critics at the very top of the profession, uh, you know, trying to chop me down at the knees to stand on my shoulders. But I feel like I've done it all and I'm looking forward to proving, you know, uh, because, you know, I think I made 10 final tables in 48 events and the whole poker world's like, what the hell? So anybody that was doubting me, you know, I've recruited for a little while, but without those haters, without those doubters, without those people chopping me down at the knee, maybe I wouldn't be as motivated. How do you, how do you handle that? Um, I, it's, I mean, I think everybody has that situation, whether it's in professional life or whatever the case may be of people who doubt them. How have you been able to handle that and keep the internal dialogue in a positive mm -hmm. place as well as the way that you treat people? Cause I know I noticed it within myself is if I feel like I'm, getting a lot of pressure from people saying you can't do this or whatever the case may be. I, I find myself to be a little bit more irritable than I'd like to be at times as well. Um, how do you balance all that? Yeah. You know, it, it, you get used to becoming the all time great, right? So my, I knew I was in the conversation for all time great in 2005 when um, maybe it was 2007. I mean, it was between Johnny Chan, Doyle Brunson and me. And I remember, man, we won the three of us won like, four bracelets in 03, and then we won like five or six in 05. We were just killing it. Only 50 tournaments, and everybody's like talking about this bracelet race, you know? <laughs> and then in 07, I got to number 11 and passed Chan and Brunson. But you know what? Those guys were on stage with me to award the bracelet and give me credit, just like I've given them the credit my whole life. Indeed. And so some of the younger critics, I still give them credit. So maybe Daniel Grani is my biggest critic. But I tell everybody he's a great player because he's a great player. And uh, if he's blinded to the fact that, that I, you know, to all the accomplishments, including me smashing him three times in a row in a highly, highly televised thing, and including all the stuff I've done in the last year, which has been a phenomenal, phenomenal run. No one's had the run I've had maybe in history. They won't talk about that. Uh, so Negreanu is Negreanu. And maybe he, he also likes me. I was, he jokes and he says, he feels the only one that was at both my weddings. That's his joke. And so I like him. Uh, but, you know, if he has blinders on to say, wow, I don't understand why Phil does what he does or, you know, I want to teach him to become better. Right. Um, because he believes <clears throat> the path he's following is the right path. He believed that in 08 and 09 when he was clearly wrong. He believes that today. And that's OK, um, as long as he's not becoming personal uh, with me. That's a. That's if you want to say, hey, Phil's not the greatest or oh, I don't think he understands what he's doing. Uh, that okay. takes that takes a lot of maturity, right? To di to differentiate how you feel about a person versus how you feel about his poker game, or you know, a lot of it. Sometimes you have to understand, you know, to put this into context. Like to be as good as you are, and they do this with Michael Jordan all the time, right? It's like 
he was so great that it's almost like it's people need to find a reason to dethrone him versus just saying, okay, that's the GOAT. Kobe's a GOAT. LeBron's a GOAT. Everybody can kind of be a GOAT, but you don't have to knock one down to put yourself above them or critics don't need to do that either. But to you, the question that I have is like to be kind of like the Michael Jordan and kind of know it and have the track record to prove it. Is that, is the weight of that overwhelming too? Sometimes like, damn, I have to force humility sometimes versus just acknowledging what the math says, right? How do you kind of do that? Like remain humble, but at the same time, you have the right to be proud of your accomplishments. Yeah, I've, I I did a very poor job of that um, throughout the 1990s, throughout the, you know, the, the aughts, you know, 2000 to 2009 or whatever you want to call them. And even the first two or three years of the tens and, and maybe did a very poor job. And so there's a cycle involved, right? Now I can speak to from experience about this. You win a bunch of tournaments, you know, you realize, oh my God, I'm the top of the poker world and you get too cocky. And because that cockiness, you lose focus. Um, you, all you think is you're great. There's a whole kind of litany of bad stuff that comes with that. Now I was able to avoid cheating on my wife, which is amazing. I was able to avoid becoming an alcoholic or a drug guy, you know, I'm not against drugs, but I avoided all that stuff. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and instead, uh, you know, the self-centeredness, maybe I could be unbearable at times. For sure, that's the case. And so that's how it manifested itself with me. But you find the cycles become less time-wise, right? Mm -hmm. And so here's an example of, you know, let's go 2012 where um, in the Aria Hotel. And I think I saw MJ on Friday night, Michael Jordan, and uh, he's getting into his limo. He's just sitting down. So you, you expect him just to wave. He sees me and he jumps out of the limo to come over to talk to me. And I'm like, oh my God, Michael Jordan jumped out of like, he just yeah. sat down. Yeah. You don't just come talk to, that's fucking Michael Jordan. Yeah. You know, so I'm like, oh my God. So then you're all cocky. And then Sunday, I, I, I finished like fourth in this heads up tournament. And I called the, and I couldn't even, so exhausted. I said, honey, I need to order some food. Well, the only place that wouldn't deliver it was Javier's. And so I said, oh, my God, I'm going to run into Michael Jordan. I said it out loud and just kind of a weird thing. I never say that. And I did know he was in town. And so I had to go get my food. So I go down to Javier's. I did ask. I did walk through the High Limit Lounge. And I did ask, is MJ here? They said no. And I'm like, okay, cool, no problem. So I decided to, to take the escalator on the way back up, right? Not a big deal, uh, but the escalator, I'm like, oh, I'll run into less people, right? And uh, higher chance if I went through high limit to see MJ, because he goes to high limit a lot at the Aria. And, uh, but anyway, boom, I get to the top of the escalator, bam, MJ's turning the corner. What the fuck? It's just weird. I'm like, what a weird life I lead, right? He's, he's with this guy, Pops, and they're walking about one step. One step. One step. Pops is in the 70s, you know? So I'm coming up fast with my food in my hand and I just fucking I'm like you know what I'm gonna leave him alone fucking him everybody bothers this guy to slam my sunglasses on him coming up 90 miles an hour and I stop and I say hey good to see you MJ it's like Phil good to see you and bam I'm gone so I'm shooting down this 
and I take a left turn at, you know, if anybody's tracking at home at, uh, you know, John George's Steakhouse, there's the VIP elevators on the second floor. I go there, I turn the corner coming up 90 miles an hour, open the, use my key to open the VIP door. And as I open it, I look behind because I'm from Wisconsin and I want to let anybody who can walk into the place, walk into the place. I like to hold the door for people mm. and MJ's one to catch up with me. And I'm like, what the hell? But I knew what to say because I was expecting to see him. And I'm like, hey, congratulations on your wedding. And, uh, you know, he's like, hey, how's it going, Phil? I'm like, well, I just finished fourth in this tournament. And so he and I just talking for five minutes, get on the same elevator, talking, 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 talking. And I'm just like, fuck, man, you talk about a mind blow. Yeah. Like he's my, he's maybe my number one guy in the world that like, mm -hmm. you know, that I was a fan of. Um, and then, and then I'd emceed Tiger's event for him. Uh, and Tiger and I had drank all night and played blackjack together. And that was like three weeks before. Right. And then, uh, and then, um, and then I get up in the morning and someone's emailed me that Obama, he was still president. So maybe this was 012 Obama, uh, is in Palo Alto and is asking how you're doing at the World Series of Poker. I'm like, Obama knows my name. <laughs> oh my God, I knew it was a poker guy. Yeah. But I'm just like, and so I just, it just blew my mind, right? And so I walked around for two weeks and I was on cash number 99. And I knew when I hit 100, I was going to be the first guy to have 100 worlds. I knew it was going to be a, a nice moment for the press. And yeah. I couldn't get that cash for two and a half weeks because all I wanted to do was tell everybody about Michael Jordan and Obama. So we're walking around like a fucking idiot, paying too much, way too much attention to the persona that exists, right? The persona of Phil Hellmuth, living in that persona and not paying attention. And then, you know, you fast forward then to 2018, where Sheryl Sandberg hosted a, a book launch party for Poker Brat, which is incredible. And people flew in from London because Sheryl was hosting a party. I'm like, are you guys crazy? Matt Glantz flew in from the East Coast. He's like, Sheryl Sandberg's hosting it. When they arrived, I said, oh, by the way, Elon Musk is on the list to show up tonight, as is Elizabeth Holmes. Well, Elon shows up, and now everybody's mind is blown, and it's hosted by Cheryl, and there's Elon Musk. And so another mind-blowing moment. And Elon and I have hung out before, and but he shows up to my autobiography book launch party. And so it was pretty cool, and I said, oh, my God, I'm going to be. The difference was that I then had to read my autobiography the next five days in a row for four hours. And I was reading about how much I struggled. You read my autobiography, Poker Brad, and it really talks about how hard it was to me in my younger years. And so the cycle didn't last long. My mind didn't get blown. And now when these weird things happen, like I'm invited to these parties, my friend hosted a party with the Winklevoss brothers and Austin and Diplo was there and Elon Musk was there and I was invited to go hang out. And I decided this was last week. I decided not to go. I was going to focus on poker because I really wanted to show these high roller guys that I could do it. And had I gone to that, though, my mind wouldn't have been as blown. So the, what I'm trying to say is the cycles less and less and less. And, uh, you know, and I use VM coming back the very long winded way to come back and Partha to come back to your to what you guys were saying. But I will use this song. Uh, it's called Fanny Be Tender by the uh, by the uh, I'm going to take a quick look at this shit. <laughs> um, I can't help myself. Hold on. One more second. Here it is. So this song by the Bee Gees, Fanny Be Tender With My Love, right? 
Yeah, yeah. it's been phenomenal for my ego. Because it talks about first I rise, then I fall, and it talks about how um, how I could get crushed. I'm going to listen to a few more words of this. Hold on. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Be tender with my love. Because you know how easy it is to hurt me. And so you guys are, whoa, what the hell? Phil's using a song to lessen his ego. Well, the World Series of Poker this year, okay, uh, I went in there and I made five final tables in around 17 days. No one had ever done that before. And so, um, and I won a bracelet and I had a second. So a first, a second, five, five, just tore it apart, crushed it. And so now everybody's telling me every day the press is going crazy about me. You know, everybody's congratulating me, hundreds of texts, da 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 da, right? The craziness has started. And all I could do was listen to this song and just realize that it doesn't matter if I'm if I'm the greatest of all time. It doesn't matter if I'm gonna become a billionaire. It doesn't matter, none of this matters if my wife can crush me with one stroke. Mm -hmm. And so I found some, and my wife's like, ah, I don't know. First, she was like, oh, I like you listening to this song. And then she's like, I don't. I'm like, honey, listen, this song is great for my ego because it reminds me that my primary relationship is the most important relationship in my life. And if for some reason my wife went crazy or wanted to divorce me, I would be in massive pain. It would destroy my life for a little while, right? Um, we saw this other poker players. When their relationship falls apart, they lose a lot of money for three to six months. They drink too much. And so the importance of that primary relationship between my wife and I, and the fact that it could be ripped from me, you know, makes me kind of cognizant of the fact that, all right, it's nice to do the five final tables and it's nice to make all these appearances and it's nice to host all these TV shows and it's nice to write New York Times bestsellers. But without my wife and my close friends, if they all go crazy, I'm screwed. So. Mm -hmm. That's, that's helped me a lot. So the cycles lessened and that song helps. And I'm sorry for the most long-winded answer ever. <laughs> no, it's great. You said, you said something to me, um, I think it was about a, a year back, kind of along these same lines. You said you have a really strong sense of when you're in the movie versus when you're in real life. Correct. And I, that has resonated so deeply with me. I've carried it to, you know, there's a lot of privileges, obviously, for, for running a hot startup. Um, but just being able to go to the events, meet the folks, and be able to come in with the mentality, okay, this event is not real life. This is part of the job. This is part of you know, mm -hmm. the yep. character, really, you play for society, and to separate that from who you really are. So your ego, your, your kind of attitude to how you approach the world doesn't have to fluctuate just based on your experiences like that. Yeah, I mean, I do think of it exactly like that. And I'm going to come back one more thing. One more side note, Partha, I want to tell you the Michael Jordan story that I tell you on the Young Founders, because I know you like that one. But before we go there, I'm going to answer that, the, the question you just asked. Sorry, remind me what you were asking again, because I, I had a really when, good No, when, when it's the movie versus when. Yeah, yeah. So there's this movie, right? This movie exists for me. It's an incredible movie. And this movie means that U.S. presidents, like, want to hang out with me. Like, I remember... How, how do I find myself at the 2012 Super Bowl when the Packers were there, whatever year that was? How do I find myself at Bush's soft library opening? And how am I the only guy in the room that doesn't have a suit on? 
And how does Bush and Condi Rice, how do they want to talk to me, right? And then, you know, and then that picture of us went on the cover of the London Times, Helm Youth talking to the guy that got rid of online poker and cost him millions. <laughs> you know, but I found, but you know, I'm neither a Democrat or Republican. I also I get a lot of time with Clinton and Clinton is, you know, uh, Clinton is always like, Phil, how's it going? Or, you know, this, so I find myself in these crazy things. I was in Italy, I saw Elon Musk and he's, how's it going, Phil? And it was some great stories from, from that trip, you know? And, uh, so I find myself in these incredible with these amazing people um, and, and it's just kind of, I think of it more as like the movie, you know, and it's become more and more integrated into my life. But I also think in terms of some of the stuff that happens within the movie, mind blowing and mind blowing didn't mean anything to me until I started realizing that, wow, you know, the MJ and the, you know, and Obama when he's us president asking about me, that was mind blowing. You know, when I'm, when I'm with Elon Musk and we're drinking tequila having deep talks. It's mind blowing stuff, right? And you get more used to it as time passes, but, but yeah, that is, I always just think of it, Partha, as that's the movie. And if you become too ingrained in, in the weird stuff that happens in life, I mean, my friend owns the Warriors, Joe Lacob, and he has me sit next to him. He gives me floor seats for almost every big game. And I go and I sit next to him and the players all come up to me, the Warriors players and the players from the other team come up to me. It's, this is mind blowing stuff to anybody. Yeah. And so it's just kind of a weird life that I lead or, you know, or I see Jay-Z on the floor, you know, and, and I'm like, all right, when should I should go up? When should I go up? All right, there's a timeout. I'll walk over and say hi to Jay. He's three seats from me, jumps out of his seat. Phil, how's it going? He's a fan of mine, you know? And yeah. I'm like, what the fuck? And someone took a picture. Uh, the press took a picture of us talking and I, I probably tweeted that picture out too much because I'm a big Jay-Z fan. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so, so these these things are are, are mind blowing in the part of the movie. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's, that's. No, I want to come back, Partha, to the to the ego stuff, the thing that I told you, and the thing that I tell the young founders, because you do live in this movie right now, Partha. You have this great movie. You're you, you're part of a hot startup, so you're invited to cool events. You're invited to meet amazing people, and people want to invest. So you're finding this kind of stuff that can be mind blowing. The movie. And so what I tell you and, and all the young founders and is, is I tell the Michael Jordan story about how I was in Miami and I did this event for A-Rod and being like, and then afterwards I'm like, fuck it, I'm going out to the club and A-Rod sent a limo for me to go to a mansion, mansions mm -hmm. I think it's called. So I show, I go by myself because I'm not afraid to show up by myself, you know, I'm just, because I'm rolling, I'm feeling confident, you know, nobody shows up by themselves, but I'm not afraid. I did try going to a club by myself once. I didn't like that, no, but I knew going, there'd be some people there. Um, so I show up at the rail and the guy's just like, this had to be maybe 07 or something, long time back. And the guy, the, the bouncer is like, oh, I'm taking you straight back to the back. MJ's back there. Mm -hmm. what the fuck? So I go back there and, and A-Rod had told me, and I texted A-Rod and he's like, hey, uh, MJ said he was 99% to show up to my party or something like that, but he didn't make it. <laughs> so now it's me and MJ, Holyfield's in the booth and all these superstars. And, you know, MJ and I are both kind of dancing. A lot of guys don't dance in a club, but we're dancing. He's on my right. And uh, I turn to him and I say, uh, 
yo, MJ, you're the greatest bat. And he stops me, put, gives me the Heisman. Mm -hmm. Why the Heisman? He does not want praise. I do not want praise. Praise is fucking corrosive. Yeah. And so we spend our all of our time trying to trying to make stuff a movie, trying to make, trying to understand the importance of our primary relationship to avoid being too egotistical so that we can continue to do what we're doing. So we can continue to stay on a path, you know, of greatness or whatever. And so he puts his hand up and said, no, let me finish MJ. And, uh, and he's like, okay. And I said, you're the greatest basketball player of all time, but you have six world championships and I have 10 motherfucker. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> now he loved that and gave me a high five because I'm saying six world championships is nothing compared to my 10. Now, of course, I, you know, I'm just fucking with him, obviously. Yeah. yeah. I ran into Tiger uh, about a, a month ago in, uh, at Malibu Nobu. I went there to give my 16th world championship bracelet away to Sky Dayton. And I flew in just for that. Wow. And, uh, I canceled my trip uh, because. The tournament I was planning and spending 10 days, but I found out the tournament wasn't as big as it was supposed to be. It wasn't a world poker tour. And that's why I was able to focus on the high rollers. I used those 10 days instead. But I flew down to meet some of my best friends. And I hand them the bracelet and uh, they're teasing me, billionaire, 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 because I dropped that name so <laughs> often. And so they're all teasing me and they're like, David Sachs is there, you know, billionaire, uh, some other of my friends are there and I'm like, there's there, you probably know every billionaire in this place. There's like four billionaires of the five people at our table. I can't even tell you the names because some are pretty private. And then, uh, and then I, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I know every billionaire. We're just laughing and joking. Just the energy is incredible. You know, we're at Malibu, Nobu, we're on kind of the porch, you know, that's a beautiful and, spot. Uh, and then I get tapped and it's tiger. What the fuck is amazing. Oh, wow. Tiger and, and Michelle Bemis from, Tiger Woods Foundation. She's terrific. And I stand up and I start talking. How's it going? You know, he was there for his tournament, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess it's a Friday night or a Saturday night, I think a Friday. And uh, I suddenly say, hey, Tiger, can I give you shit? Can I tease you? He's like, of course. And, uh, and so I say, now I know that he has 15 majors and I had 15 world championships. Mm -hmm. And I MC his event every year and we always tease each other on the mic. So you know where I'm going with this. I'm like, give me my 16th bracelet, Sky. And my plan is, Sky hands it to me. Well, it's not mine anymore. It's his. Yeah. And so I, I'm, I'm going to pull it out and say, this is what it's like to have 16, bitch, to Tiger. <laughs> and I know he's going to love it and give me a high five because we're fucking, we're just having fun. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and MJ and Tiger want to be teased. They don't want to be praised. And That's so uh, and so I pull it out and I open it and I say, this is my 16th. And before I can say another word, Tiger says, Phil. I knew you could do it. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> Which he just beat you to the punch. <laughs> so now I'm like, fuck. And he probably did it intentionally. Yeah. He's he just too good. Tiger's so sharp. Yeah. And now what am I going to do after that? So I just kind of let it make my week that, that, that he said that. And yeah. didn't, didn't do it's anything. But, you know, that stuff, that could be another mind-blowing moment for me. And I did lose 110000 playing Chinese poker against one of my friends that night. Um, and they kept saying, oh, my God, Tiger came up to you. And uh, and so, you know, you try not to let these things in too much. Yeah, it's, it's these are all great stories. And the common thread is also knowing how to be in different rooms, right? And it seems like you know how to carry yourself in a variety of rooms. And that carries over 
I would like to say partially from being from Wisconsin and continuing to have kind of that was that Midwest mentality, no matter where life takes you. Um, but I wanted to transition a bit. And, you know, you just mentioned you lost $110,000 playing Chinese poker that night. One of the things about poker, and even, you know, when I played a lot, one of the things that poker does that's challenging is it changes your perception of money. It changes your perception of money uh, pretty drastically. You could win a million dollars one day. You could, you could, you know, you could lose a million dollars. How do you carry that and take that away from the poker table into real life, right? Because money doesn't operate the same way. You could lose a hundred thousand dollars playing poker, but what hundred thousand dollars means in real life versus what it means in poker to you are completely different things, right? How have you kind of managed? Those two. Things. Yeah, I know you hit the nail on the head there because money's a commodity, right? And so, you know, you you have a relationship with money till you're 20, and you think of it as being this, right? And then all of a sudden you're playing poker, and you're winning and losing absurd amounts of money. Mm-hmm. And you know the one thing the one thing that I remember losing five hundred thirty six thousand dollars to Phil Ivy in one night, and I said this will never happen again. That's why I don't play in the biggest games in the world that often because mm-hmm. I don't want to lose 250. I can't handle it. My system hates that. If I win 250, that's great. We'll find a place for that somewhere. You know what I mean? And I have those nights, but I never have a night where I lose 250 anymore. Now, it's different if I'm playing in my private game, you know, and I've written about this in my books and talked about it a lot. We settle at the end of the year. So, you know, if you lose 150 in one night, uh, you have till the end of the year to get it back. It's not as doesn't hurt as much. But when you're, if I'm playing in a cash game in in LA, a private game where they have to pay the next day, or if I'm playing, you know, I know it's different. No, if it's televised, and I know that I and I might take, I took four hundred thousand of my own money the last time I filmed, and I said, all right, I'm filming four days. I'm going to risk a hundred thousand a day, and I took that chance because it was spread over four days, and because I've been crushing the televised cash games for so long that I felt confident. But generally speaking, if I'm in a position where I'm going to risk a lot of money, I'll bring in some partners. And, uh, you know, I've made my friends millions of dollars in poker, but I've made my friends $1.1 billion in deals that I've helped them secure. $1.1 billion. And they all know it. And so when I'm starting, when I'm starting, a new fund when I'm doing uh, SPACs, when I'm doing all this stuff, um, <clears throat> I just keep putting them in great positions to make a lot of money. And it makes me feel good um, that, that, that I've been able to do that. You know, Chamath went public with the Golden State Warriors. You know, Chamath's my best friend and he called me back after from flying back from New York. He said, David Stern, you know, uh, <clears throat> wouldn't let me buy a piece of an NBA team. Not that he wouldn't let him, but more or less there was nothing available. So, you know, uh, and so, and so it had to be like a month later. And I said, Hey, the Golden State Warriors are selling 11 points, 12 points, 10 points, whatever it was. And uh, I walked him into that deal. I connected him with Joe Lacob and Kirk Lacob. I walked him into the final deal. And, you know, he bought in at 400 million and the team's worth $5 billion. Um, <clears throat> you know, so another one of my friends, uh, you know, I, I was sponsor money in a SPAC and I invested and I found the company that we'd take public, but I found my friend's company. And at peak uh, last year, he had $800 million worth of stock. 
He went public through my SPAC. So would he have made that money anyway? Yes. But even he says that he was very happy with the group he was involved with. And he doesn't know what else could have happened. So, I mean, you know, um, I, I've, been, I've brought in friends to invest in a lot of companies. For Lasso Gear and Partha, Andrew Bogut, you know, uh, who's an Australian superstar, uh, one of the biggest sports legends in Australia, uh, ended up buying a piece of uh, Lasso Gear because I invited him in. And he's done well as an investment as Partha continues to, to grow. And I appreciate that story, Phil. And, you know, I, I want to be uh, respectful of your time here because we're getting getting to the top of the hour. Um, you know, just uh, kind of to close these things out, we, we'd love to just talk about the product as well at Lasso. Um, I know you wear it when you travel. Can you can you share a little bit about um, your experience with the socks and uh, kind of what, what brought you into getting involved with the company? Well, Partha, you know, I tried to bring Draymond Green in. And yeah. so... You asked for an address, which was smart, and we sent him a bunch of product. And then I didn't hear from him. I reached out to him, and and then um, and then he and I were on a trip somewhere, uh, and uh, and then I was told by the people with him that he uses the socks to work out every single day. The lasso gear. And I'm like, what? Why didn't you tell me this? You should be an investor in this company. You know, you should be a face of this company. At least be involved. And, uh, you know, and so, um, you know, we also know that, you know, there's a lot of professional athletes that, you know, I think James Harden was wearing our sock for a couple of seasons. I don't know if he still wears it during every game, does he? Uh, I'm, I'm actually not sure. We lost contact uh, once he made the moves. But it's amazing how many incredible athletes, you know, Cam Newton, wear the sock all the time. And then for me personally, uh, when we went down to Galapagos Island, which was a pretty cool trip, um, I, I'm like, all right, we, they're like, all right, we're hiking for seven hours. It's something, it's pretty cool little hike you make in the Galapagos. And uh, you see some really cool stuff you don't see anywhere else on the planet. And so I put my lasso gear socks on in my entire life. And I wore them the other day when I traveled. The, my entire life, I've never had a sock that I can pull up that sticks. Mm. They always fall down because I think my calves are maybe bigger than, maybe my, my, you know, calves are a little bit too big, but, but these ones stuck the entire day. So I walked eight hours. I never had to, and I'm sure they helped me. And, uh, you know, I, I flew the other day and I threw the lasso gear socks on and it's just, it's, it's been an amazing product, but it's also amazing to see the feedback from, you know, healthcare workers, airline, airline employees. And I mean, Partha, where can people see, you know, the reviews? Oh, so they're all over our website and our Instagram. So lassogear.com at lassogear. I appreciate you helping me plug on on my own podcast here. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think the thing that has been really interesting about not only us working together, but going through the process of building is that it's the product is great. And I think we've been able to establish that in the marketplace. And there's so much, so many ins and outs through business that happen as a founder, especially when you're trying to bring something it's a new idea to the world. It's not so much about, you know, if we were just making regular socks, that would be one thing, but we're actually impacting how people's bodies work on a day-to-day basis. And bringing these concepts around requires, um, you know, the perspective that you've been able to build, the, the folks that you've mentioned on this podcast that you spend time with, that they've built over time. And it's very, very different than the type of business you learn out of a textbook or the type that you learn um, in school. And so, 
you know, I just just want to kind of close this out saying kind of appreciate not only the perspective you've brought, but hopefully our listeners are able to see a little bit through the lines that the underlying philosophy of you are at the right place at the right time always, that is really the core driver of bringing great ideas out and creating massive success and really becoming your best version of yourself. And it may not be obvious at first, you know, how the dots connect, but it's always when you look backwards, you see how the path was laid out for you. Yeah. And, and I think strategic thinking is, is, is that's something I engaged in immediately with you guys. I'm like, oh my God, you know, uh, are you doing this? Are you doing that? And, and, you know, and you had probably mapped out a lot of that stuff already, but for me, it was a lot of fun. And then also, I think for me, it was, it was fun. The, the, for me, it was a part, you would call me a lot more often in the past. And yeah. then the minute that we hired, uh, Uli, what's his name? Uli. Ooh, yeah. From Reebok. The minute we hired, what's his last name? Becker, Uli Becker. Uli Becker from Reebok. I'm like, all right, I'm not getting any more phone calls because here's a guy that's built a company, you know, Reebok already. He's going to help a lot more than me. But if it was, it still was, it was still was a pleasure for me to feel like I helped and and you know make some phone calls and also tell you how to deal with some of these sophisticated investors was part of what I did. So I could bring sophisticated investors, but then help you deal with them because you know these guys are busy, right? And they wouldn't answer you for a month, and you're like, Phil. And I'm like, dude, you guys, four kids. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I, I don't know that side of the, of life yet, but you know, I will say to, to that note as well, I've, I'm glad I've been able to bring a few more companies to your network of young founders and uh, companies you've invested in and advised as well. Um, dude, you brought me prize picks. Yeah, absolutely. I got on prize picks at 10 million valuation. We're arguably worth a billion now. Now, Adam may go out and raise it 400 million or 500 million because he's smart and he doesn't want to go for the max dollar, which, which to people at home might sound counterintuitive, but to businessmen might sound like, all right, maybe that's smarter. So, but that company, if you look at, you know, comparables, comps, we call them, you know, um, there was a company that raised it $500 million that does less than half of our revenue, yeah. less than half of our profit. So, but it's also been a, a pleasure to deal with Adam. You know, it was interesting because he had a chance to hire me as an investor or uh, like um, an endorser where they could use my name. And, it, and he chose he chose advisor. Um, and I was like, all right, this is sweet. And you set that up, Partha. And I think I think I helped him a lot. Andrew Bogut's also involved in that one. And, you know, I put him in touch with some pretty cool athletes as well. But, you know, it's strategic. Anyway, it's been a lot of fun for me to, to be a part of this. And Partha, I think you may have set up another deal or two for me. So thank you for that. Yeah, yeah the, the common thread here is that as I listen to this part of the conversation is this, right? Like a lot of people don't fully understand that you have to take risks in life to be rewarded. And you've learned that through poker. Obviously, you risk your money every single day. It's It's not always about the wins and losses. It's about making the right picks and being okay if that pick doesn't work out. That's what investing is, right? Because every pick isn't going to work out. But over time, the win should outnumber the losses. And it seems like as I listen to you, that's kind of the grounding that you have that makes you have the right mindset to apply to business and investing. Well, it's not only that. VF, think of it in terms like this. So, so I was involved in a company. Somebody brought me this amazing deal. Unfortunately, the company didn't work. So um, um, it was a, a new cell phone and they had a 3D camera 
and they gave me like $500,000 worth of stock options. Incredible. And if this company works, maybe I make $10 million. And uh, he brought me this amazing deal, Niccolo Damasi. And, uh, and he called me to say, hey, listen, the company's not going to make it. I apologize. And I'm like, apologize? What are you talking about? You brought me this amazing deal. I love your energy. I love the way you work. Please, please, please let me invest in whatever you do next, you know? And so kind of not, so not only the philosophy of something not making it, but then saying, I want to do whatever you do next. Well, that led to these SPACs, okay? The first SPAC of which we took out Rush Street Interactive, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, and they gave me a $2 million bonus for that. And so, so, you know, hey, we're looking for a company. Hey, Phil found the company. Hey, put, Phil put Niccolo Damasi in touch with Greg Carlin. And we took the company out for billions of dollars. And so, you know, uh, and so for me, it's beyond. So, I mean, I try to tell everybody the same thing with, uh, with Partha. If for some reason Lasso Gear doesn't make it, I want to know what you're doing next. And I want to be the first investor. And so it's, it's you know, it's, it's, I think that gives a little bit of confidence to, uh, to the younger founders, but also, uh, you know, lets them know that, you know, that I have faith, which gives them confidence, but also that this might not be the only thing you do. Yeah. I love the perspective, man. Um, again, I want to, I want to get us, get us out of here in, in a respectful time. Um, Phil, this has been so unbelievable. You, every time we talk, I'm glad we got to do it in a setting where it's going to be available for the public. Uh, the information you drop is it's just so valuable. It's its these gems that, you know, I can always come back to and think about and, and reflect on. I know many others out there will. Um, so, you know, thank you for coming on. Thanks for the time. And, and Partha, you talk about me plugging Lasso, which is easy because it's such a great company. Thank you for talking about my book because it makes it makes me feel good. You know, a lot of I've changed a lot of people's lives with these eight life tips. I'm, I don't to, I'm, on, I'm on I'm on Amazon right now ordering my copy. So yeah, and and I don't hear from most of them, but uh, <laughs> but I do hear from a lot of people, you know, especially the one where I say take your yearly goals and tape them to your bathroom mirror, and then people are always like, I achieved my number one and number two goal because of you, Phil, because I put it on my bathroom mirror. So you know, 2022 goal, you know, goal one, two, three, four, five. So, but thanks for that, Partha. Yeah, I feel. It makes me feel feel good to know that I've that I've helped that I've helped you there a little bit. So thanks. Absolutely. Awesome, Phil. Thanks so much for your time. See you guys.